Welcome to Swift Unwrapped. Swift Unwrapped is a podcast about everything that's happening in the Swift world, Apple's programming language. Uh, my name's JP Smard. And I'm Jesse Squires. And uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about what's new in Swift 4. And there are so many things that we didn't really have time to cover it all in a single episode. So today, we're going to pick up where we left off then uh, and discuss what else is new in Swift 4. Right, so last time we talked about one-sided ranges, uh, improvements to the string APIs, the access access level uh, changes, smart key paths, encoding, decoding, and we wrapped it up uh, right there with encoding, decoding, and um, codable conformance. And today we'll start with uh, the new dictionary and set enhancements. So one of the cool things uh, that was added uh, was a sequence-based initializer. Uh, so uh, now suppose you have an array of tuples where uh, you just have two, two values in the tuple. You can initialize a dictionary with that, um, and it will construct a dictionary where the key is the first uh, value in the tuple and the value uh, is the second. Uh, so pretty convenient way to uh, construct dictionaries. Right, and uh, oftentimes, like say you have an array where the, the key is derived from the value, or say you want to split, uh, say like a string with a delimiter, and the first part is the, the key and the second part's the value, then you can kind of map that to uh, an, an array of tuples and then pass that to this new dictionary initializer, which is unique keys with values. And you just pass in this array of tuples or sequence of tuples, right, and, uh, and you get... Each uh, first member is a key and second member is a value. Um, another useful thing to do there is say you want an indexed, uh, kind of the index value of each array item, then you can zip uh, using this one-sided range. You can use zip one dot dot dot, uh, comma, your array. And then each member of the array will be a value and the key will be its index in the array. Um, so that's, that's super useful. But this requires that... Uh, you have unique keys, um, and that's where uh, the the initializer name comes in, unique keys with values. That won't always be the case, which is where the second initializer comes in, uniquing keys with, and then that takes in a closure or a function. Yeah, so with this alternative, uh, if you have non-unique keys, you can use that closure to specify which key value pair you want to be in the constructed dictionary. Right. So if you had, uh, for example, an array of tuples where uh, the first member was an item and the second member was its count, but then you might have duplicates because those counts are coming in from multiple places and you just kept on appending to this array, what you could do uh, is you pass in this array and then you have some duplicate keys, but what you want to do in your unique keys is to do an addition of each member that's that's being compared, right? So you could just do uniquing keys with first plus second, 
And then the dictionary that you'd get back would have unique keys because that's a storage requirement of dictionary. And it'll have the sum of all the count elements that you had in your second member of the uh, of the tuple. Or another thing to do is you could just like throw out the uh, least like the the lowest value, for example, or you could um, throw out the highest value, right? So uh, this could be used as an algorithm for some sort of sorting, um, right? You could probably do implement like some sort of shuffle sort with this in a very uh, idiomatic way or a very concise way. Um, this is pretty powerful. Another thing that was added uh, are subscripts with default values. So Usually, when you access a value in a dictionary via subscripting, you have you know, a dictionary and your square brackets with the key name, and then yeah, it, uh, you're you're getting the value out, assigning it to uh, some variable. But now there's a uh, a new version of that where you'll have your bracket and your key name, and then a default value that you can put in there if. Uh, that key doesn't exist. Uh, so this could be really convenient in a lot of scenarios uh, where if if some value is not in this dictionary that you expect, uh, you can very concisely and clearly provide uh, this default value. Previously, you'd have to check for this, and if it's nil, then provide this default value. There's a lot of boilerplate there that you can eliminate with this new a- API. Right. Yeah, so common patterns here are um, if you want to mutate your dictionary as you're iterating through it, and um, you know as you're iterating, the dictionary may or may not have a key value entry for the, the point in which you're at. So you want to initialize it if it doesn't exist. So previously, you'd, you'd have kind of multiple reads and writes in a fairly uh, long declaration um, to, to do this, whereas here it's it's super concise and um, you only compute the default if uh, it, it doesn't exist. So uh, it's pretty, pretty, pretty nice um, syntactic uh, improvement and probably performance-wise as well. Uh, there are some uh, new map and filter methods on dictionary as well. Um, so you have uh, you now have an equi- a variant of filter that doesn't return an array on dictionary. Um, so you can do dictionary.filter and you can return a dictionary with uh, either the keys or the values um, or both used as a filtering criteria for just removing those key value pairs. Um, very useful. Say you want to remove all of the keys, key value pairs where the key starts with a prefix. You know, super useful. Previously, you'd have to kind of make a copy of the dictionary, uh, remove those keys explicitly based off of kind of iterating over the whole dictionary, and then return the mutated version. Uh, now, this this is a single call, uh, much more concise. And so previously, a filter, if dictionary.filter returned an array, what was in that array? Tuples? It was an array of tuples of oh, key values. Yeah, yeah. So if you were filtering, you would just remove some of those tuples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is much more convenient, right? And actually, what's what's funny is that without this filter, uh, uniquing unique keys with values, which we talked about earlier, would be even more helpful because you could pass in the result of dictionary filter to dictionary init, right. uh, and get a dictionary <laughs> back. But this kind of saves a bunch of allocations and um, it's just a lot more concise. 
Yeah, map values is pretty nice. So dictionary.mapValues will transform all of the values、uh, in the dictionary、uh, while preserving、uh, the original structure. So、uh, let's say if you have a lot of values,、uh, let's say all the values in your dictionary are strings,、uh, you could do different、uh, string transformations, like making all the strings uppercase or lowercase or something like that.、Um, and then、uh, what you get back is、uh, the same dictionary just with all All of those key or all of those values transformed. That's right.、Um, and this is another case where, if you use the previous map、uh, function, that I think is really just using the sequence、uh, default implementation of map, because dictionary conforms to sequence, and then you you get back a mapped set of key value tuples in an array. You could have also passed that to、um, the unique、huh. keys with values, <laughs> and and get what you have here with map values.、Um, so everything these are comes, all really related. Yeah, everything just comes full circle here. Yeah.、Um, now. Uh, of note, there is no map keys,、um, and I am not familiar with the the rationale or the discussion around this particular proposal. But、um, map keys, I think, is probably less commonly used. And again, you can use、uh, the sequence based map and pass that into、um, the unique keys with values initializer and, and compose that yourself. So. Uh, it's possible that it, it was just not common enough to add to the API surface area where it's easily composed.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can write your own map keys、uh, using that. Right. <laughs> Maybe that'll be Swift Four's equivalent of the result type, <laughs>、yeah. where every library has a map keys.、Uh, who knows? But I just don't think it's that common. Probably not. Uh, then uh, uh, set has some improvements. So set dot filter. Uh, now returns a set instead of an array, which is、uh, really nice. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense.、Um, you know, I'm not sure why set returned、uh, an array before when called set filter. I suspect that it's because、uh, it was just using the default sequence implementation, and、uh, sequence dot filter doesn't know what kind of container、uh, it can put its filtered objects in, so it just defaults to an array. Um, but it's possible that it was an、uh, an explicit decision to have it return an array, and they just kind of changed their minds here. But the semantics really makes sense here. Yeah, set was added、uh, much later,、um, so my guess is it was just、uh, something that was overlooked and missed、uh, with set being a sequence and just getting the default、uh, filter implementation.、Uh, only later we realized, oh, it'd probably be nice to have a set returned here instead. That's right. So. Next up,、uh, we have an initializer for dictionary again、uh, that allows grouping an array that's used as input. So this is a very common operation. I have an equivalent of this, although I don't think the API is as nice as what was proposed and implemented here、uh, in a lot of the projects that I work on. Where, say, you want to、um, you want to group the items in an array by whatever criteria you want, you can specify. A、uh, grouping function here in this grouping initializer. So it's dictionary init grouping takes in a sequence, and then by which takes in、um, a sort criteria either as a function or as a closure.、Um, very concise,、uh, probably a fairly efficient way to do this. So,、uh, big fan of this one. Another change to、uh, collections. 
was uh, the mutable collection that swap at method, uh, which was added in SC173. So this allows you to swap elements in a collection. So if you have an array and you want to swap two elements at two of the indices, you just call like array.swapat, provide the two indices, and then uh, it will swap them. Yeah, and previously you could use the free function swap, uh, which takes in both parameters as in out, and it'll really just swap anything that you can pass in as as in out arguments. Uh, but the problem with passing a member of the same two different members of the same type to swap uh, is incompatible with the exclusive memory access rules that were proposed in uh, both the ownership manifesto and in SE176, which implements a lot of the um, memory access exclusivity uh, semantics that are necessary for a more uh, comprehensive ownership model. And so this is probably one main motivation for doing that. And in the future, it'll be illegal uh, to call um, swap that uh, that violates this exclusive memory access uh, requirement. And so not only that, but the fact that there's now a swap as a member function on a mutable collection means that it's a little bit more discoverable. Uh, we've talked about this before where free functions aren't as discoverable as uh, ones that are clearly scoped within a type or within a protocol definition. So there are several wins in this. And not only that, but... Uh, by passing swap at in the indices of the collection that should be um, swapped, I think that uh, you actually avoid potentially expensive access at those locations as well, where um, the Swift compiler doesn't have to actually access the contents of those locations. It can just issue the, uh, the, the move operation. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, regarding the uh, moving this as... To like a member function, uh, or a, maybe this is implemented on a uh, as a protocol extension. Uh, this was a, a shift sometime around, I think, Swift two. Uh, I think that's when protocol extensions were introduced. In the earlier days of Swift, there was, um, I guess, somewhat of a tendency to implement free functions, and then um, and to kind of embrace that idea. And then once, once protocol extensions were introduced, kind of the, the paradigm and convention shifted to prefer extension methods. So instead of in the early days, you'd have like a free form, uh, sort function, and now you have array.sort, uh, instead. Yeah. uh, Yeah. You had a bunch, basically everything that's on sequence right now um, used to be free functions that took in a sequence type as input. So sort was one of those, uh, min, max, and some of those still exist as free functions, but as part of the generics manifesto, um, there's really a strong push to uh, minimize the the amount of those that are necessary. And the bulk of those that exist out there are usually because they can't be expressed um, in an equivalent way as a uh, protocol extension. Yeah, I think it's a lot more convenient. I, I like that pattern a lot more. Yeah, I think the core team agrees, but there's kind of a lot of a lot of work that needs to happen on the generic side to fully allow uh, mm-hmm. all that expressiv- ex- expressivity that you can have as free functions um, w- with the type system to have that as protocol extensions. 
I think we're getting there. Uh, another thing that was added that we've also discussed uh, in a previous episode uh, was reduce with an out. Uh, so it looks like this is not implemented in Swift 4 yet in the, the snapshots. Um, maybe by the time you listen to this, it will be. It certainly will be by the yeah, time yeah. you listen to this. <laughs> and yeah, basically this adds a uh, version of reduce uh, where the parameter is an in-out parameter instead. Yeah, and I I've mentioned before that I am um, unreasonably excited <laughs> about this because it really helps uh, reduce the verbosity of reduce when the reduce operation is um, dependent on its state. So I I like this a lot and I look forward to using it. Next up, uh, we have generic subscripts. Now this is neat. This is uh, again an extension of generics in more places. Previously, you weren't able to specify uh, generic uh, subscript operations, whether those were index-based or key-based or or whatever you like, which caused some problems because with types that can hold uh, multiple value types, so for example, say you're representing uh, a dictionary of string keys to um, multiple value types, whether that's, you know, string, int, etc. You know, a common pattern here is representing JSON, uh, where you have arbitrary um, arbitrary types that you're storing. Uh, it, with a subscript, you would need to um, explicitly cast at the call site. And with generic subscripts, you can either say, well, this type of subscript always returns an integer. You know, so you can say like subscript uh, count of, and then you pass in the key, you know, and that always returns um, kind of a countable type. Uh, Or you could have, um, you could specify the type that you're expecting at the call site, but not actually do the casting. The casting could be done at the implementation level. Uh, So this this results in a nice nice reduction in verbosity and uh, clarifies intent. Yeah, where so where previously you would you'd have your dictionary and you'd access uh, the value, provide your your key and the brackets, and then you would have to have uh, as question mark and then the type that you you expect uh, that value to be. Um, now you declare uh, a property with an explicit type to to save that value in, and you don't have to do this as casting anymore, uh, which would definitely, if you're doing just like mundane JSON parsing, uh, which is everyone's favorite thing to do, then um, uh, you no longer have all these ugly casts everywhere. If your your variables are explicitly typed, uh, then everything just kind of works. Next up, we have um, a very exciting development uh, in bridging NS numbers. Uh, it was discovered that um, if the uh, NS number represents a type that uh, cannot be represented. So usually when when the type is larger than what you're casting it to, um, the cast will succeed, but it'll give you the overflowed value. So an example is if you initialize an NS number with uh, a uint32 value that doesn't fit in an int8, and then you go and cast that NS number uh, as an int8, it'll produce the overflowed value. So like uh, a, a uint32 of 
543 will overflow to 31 as an int 8, and Swift will gladly, Swift 3 will gladly just return that as the cast value, whereas in Swift 4, uh, that's, that's a fallible um, operation. And it's not the type that determines um, what can be cast here, it's actually the value. So if you reduce the value of this uint32 to say like you know 100, um, then doing this cast will actually re return a value of 100 as int8. Yeah, and uh, works uh, the other way as well. So in this same situation, you have this int32. If you try to cast it as anything uh, less than that, basically, so int32, int16, int8, it will all succeed um, as long as it fits. Yeah, so that should be a lot more intuitive as to how you know, casting should work. So hopefully this uh, this actually fixes some bugs out there. I bet it does because I think a lot of people uh, overlook their integer types or don't always pay close attention. Well, in programming in general, overflow is one of those common sources of bugs. Yeah. Um, so hopefully this helps address that. Oh, also, uh, one thing to note is if you just uh, cast it as an int, uh, it looks like Swift always just does the right thing. So a lot of the recommendations in uh, like the, the Swift docs uh, recommend just always using int instead of specifying specific types because uh, the compiler will uh, often choose the, uh, the correct thing. Yeah, you mean like when you know that you're only dealing with um, positive integers to still use int and not uint? Uh, even though int can represent negative numbers, just to minimize the amount of number shifting and, and number casting that you have to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, the last thing here to discuss, I think is uh, a, a much requested change. I think everyone will be super happy about this. Uh, and that's the class and subtype existentials. Uh, so what that means <laughs> is just being able to express that uh, a type is a class and a protocol. So composing uh, these two things to reference as a, uh, a single type. Uh, this has always been um, possible to express in Objective-C. So you'd have something like UI view and then like your brackets and like my protocol. And so that's uh, a type of uh, UI view that conforms to this protocol, uh, but you can never express that uh, in Swift, or not until now. Yeah, and and it's more than just uh, classes and protocols. You can also require that uh, or indicate that a type should be multiple protocols. So you can say, um, you know, in the past in Swift, if you had to require that something was both a sequence and something that had um, uh, a finite count, you know, you'd you need to create a custom protocol for that that would inherit from sequence, say, and then you know have have count. Whereas uh, those might be separate things, right? You might not be able to iterate over something else that has count. So by using this new syntax and class and subtype existentials, you just use the ampersand um, operator to indicate to the compiler that something must be both. Uh, types and you can you can even change chain these so you can have multiple protocols multiple um, you can only ever have a single class that you're inheriting from but you can have uh, an arbitrary number of protocols 
Yeah, and uh, composing protocols was always uh, possible, or at least since Swift 2, I think. So before, there's um, the syntax has, has been removed in Swift 4, uh, but what you could have is, I think it was protocol, and then you'd have angle brackets, and then uh, you could list uh, as many protocols as you want in there, and then that return type would just be um, a new protocol, um, essentially a type alias for the composition of uh, that list of protocols. Oh, interesting. So I, I was actually wrong there because um, oh. I, I didn't think that you could already compose multiple protocols like that. I thought you had to c- come up and declare your own protocol that would inherit from both and then say that you were acquiring that. Right. No, interesting. No. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. I mean, that is, uh, I mean, that's another way to do it. That might be like a... A, a kind of cleaner way to do it. But yeah, you could always compose them. Yeah, I see that now. Uh, SE156 um, uh, in the motivation says currently, and by currently, this means Swift 3 timeframe, the only existentials that could be represented in Swift are conformances to a set of protocols. And this was the same ampersand operator uh, that's, that's being uh, extended here to also include uh, classes. Super cool. Uh, I really should have dug into this a little bit more, especially given that uh, the the author, one of the authors, uh, is Austin Zhang, who I work with. Um, <laughs> so I'm I'm really happy to see this in. And then David Hart uh, as well is also credited as uh, being an author here. So on uh, IG Listkit at Instagram, we actually ran into this issue. Uh, we had um, well, it's an Objective C framework, um, and there were APIs that were returning. Um, uh, a class uh, and a protocol. Um, so Objective-C class, angle bracket, our protocol. And this is how we wanted to express this and everything was fine on the Objective-C side. But one of the goals of that library was to uh, interop cleanly and nicely with Swift. And uh, we weren't able to do that. We actually ended up making... Uh, some API changes where this wasn't uh, necessary anymore for that specific case, but um, it it did cause us some problems uh, when bridging uh, to Swift. So I guess another side effect of this is that I don't know if the proposal mentions how this will affect bridging, but I'm hoping that Objective-C APIs that are formed this way will now bridge nicely into Swift. I think it does. Um, I haven't looked at the generated interface for things like uh, UIKit um, headers or the generated Swift interface for them, but I would suspect that it can generate this. Uh, and if not, um, it's probably something that, that is coming, if not. Um, what I'm curious is more kind of the other way around, where if you have uh, an at obshi class and an at obshi protocol in Swift, and uh, you have this um, existential, if uh, in Objective-C you can call uh, conforms to protocol and whether or not that will um, be registered with the Objective-C runtime. I really, I, I'm really not sure, yeah. um, but it's something to watch out for. Yeah, definitely. So that about covers what's new in Swift 4. Um, hopefully, as both Jesse and I uh, gain a little bit more experience um, actually writing some stuff in Swift 4 and potentially migrating some projects over to it, uh, we'll, we'll have a little bit more to say. Um, it'd be nice to, to actually cover kind of our migration experience, especially as it compares to previous years. 
given that this is the first time that a single Swift compiler uh, supports multiple Swift versions. That's true. Yeah. So hopefully that simplifies the process. Yeah, uh, I expect it to be much less painful and uh, much easier to to adopt Swift for, but uh, we'll see how it goes. I hope so. Um, one of the nice things that we've mentioned before is that you can now migrate uh, to Swift 4 from Swift 3 on a module per module basis. So this works with uh, the the Swift version flag that's passed to Swift C. And uh, hopefully with the kind of very, very strong goal of source compatibility, um, it means that you can migrate to the Swift 4 compiler uh, as soon as possible and just put Swift version 3 um, and just continue working with that until you're ready to kind of split things up into modules that can be uh, migrated on a case-by-case basis, right? And it'll mean that, um, yeah, that uh, that you still get all of, or a lot of the fixes in the Swift 4 compiler um, without necessarily having to uh, to migrate your code. Yeah, especially if you're using uh, third-party libraries that may take some time to update. You can still use those, uh, even if your app, uh, you've converted all the way to uh, Swift 4. So that that specific case, I think, will be a huge win. Mm-hmm. And the, the strong goal for source compatibility is, um, it's clear, we've mentioned this before as well, it's clear that the Swift team took it really to heart, but... Um, there's no guarantee, you know, 100% that everything that you import with uh, Swift 3 mode uh, that used to compile in Swift 3 will continue to. You know, hopefully the cases where that's uh, that's not source compatible are few and far in between. And that's one of the big reasons why the source compatibility suite exists as well, is to help catch some of these problems in the wild uh, before before the release is out. Um, so, you know, if, if you want to help the Swift team, you know, make sure that Swift 4 and Swift 3 mode is fully source compatible. One of the best ways you can do that is to contribute to the uh, source compatibility test suite. Yeah, definitely. And if you find issues, also report those on uh, bugs.swift.org. If, if it can't be uh, resolved, then hopefully at least a, a migrator fix can uh, help you move over. Right. So that's it for this episode. Uh, I'm Jesse Squires. You can find me on Twitter at Jesse underscore Squires. And I'm JP Smart. You can find me on Twitter at SimJP. And the show is at Swift underscore Unwrapped. Thanks for listening.